0: Leaders at lost. I want to speak tonight on what I've called uh, wisdom, wisdom and warnings from uh, from the life story of Asa, uh, Asa or Asa, that that king. And so let's just come under God's word as I read to you from Second Chronicles. You can follow on the screen or in your Bibles, chapter 16, from verse 7 to 13, and it reads as follows. At that time. Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. And Asa was angry with the seer and put him in stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa Uh, inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. The acts of Asa from the first to the last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your most holy word. We pray that uh, we would uh, uh, open our hearts to you, to both your encouragements and your warnings, and that you would pour grace on us and strengthen us and Given a, give us a vision to finish well, to finish strong, to finish more in love with you in the evening and end of our assignments than we did at the beginning, in your name. So a question on the table is, why do so many leaders finish so poorly? We listened to John today, and uh, almost every Christian publication is telling the stories I was exposed to a study a few years back by Dr. Robert Clinton from Fuller Theological Seminary, and it was a study over 15 years, and he studied both uh, biblical leadership in the Bible and also thousands of leaders in church history, and he came to a more or less conclusion that only 30% of the so-called Biblical leaders in the Bible, people who had some kind of mandate from God, only 30% of them finished well, and 70% failed in some way or another. Uh, And so, in David's language, only 3 out of 10 fulfilled God's purpose in their generation. And if we're going to fulfill the purposes of God in our generation by strengthening and multiplying churches and ministries and seeing the blazing light of the gospel of Jesus Christ radiate across our cities and nations, if we want to see that, we can't live with those kind of stats. And yes, they are in the Bible, and they function as warnings. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he alludes to Israel's history, and he says, all of those things which happened to Israel in the past, paraphrase, uh, are written down as examples and warnings for you upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Uh, there's something sobering about all of that. And for Sue and I, as we've been doing our, our readings uh, through the Read Scripture app and just plowing through Kings it got to our attention... Uh, over and over it was like tragic. We didn't even wanna read some of that stuff in the morning because we knew it was just a matter of time where we would uh, we would re- read the eventual assessment of that king's reign and, uh, and be disappointed. And yet the Holy Spirit has chosen to record that for us and put it into that category of warnings. And we would be very unwise to think we can close out uh, gospel history Without heeding the warnings in Scripture, and so, what's remarkable about this passage that we've read is that uh, Asa. What do you what do you say in English? Is it Asa or Asa? Asa, Asa. So I had it right. Asa. He was one of the good kings. Here's the deal. He ruled Judah for forty-one years. He didn't mess up in the first decade. Wow, for the first decade. And he didn't work mess up in the second decade. Wow, and he didn't mess up in the third. As Terry Virgo once said, the devil's in no hurry to get us because the damage in the third or fourth or fifth decade of our life will not just affect us and our immediate family, it will usually uh, undermine the spheres uh, the largest spheres for which we are responsible. And uh, we must be under no illusion as an emerging young movement called Advance that uh, uh, we will escape these uh, kind of challenges and tests that will come our way. And of course it's said in First Kings 15, uh, which is not the Chronicles account, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of, of the Lord as his father David had done. I mean, this dude was on a roll as the moment he came into leadership. This is a gun. This is what happens when we come into leadership. Our hearts are so pure. We're so tender, in many ways naive to darkness and alive to God. We just so want to please God. And uh, he took away all the foreign altars his outrage of the, at the idolatry of of his day. And how can we as a nation uh, allow all this uh, idolatry? He broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord. He has a man who's seeking the Lord who manages to awaken a movement among people who are seeking the Lord. And he challenged them to... Uh, to keep the law and the commandments. He was really, really also courageous because he had to take on his mom. Close family members can be sometimes bad news. None of the moms represented here, of course. Uh, He removed his mom from her position uh, of being a sort of an in-house counselor and sort of played a little bit of a role, but because of her idolatry, And in those early years, his rule and his leadership was successful, honoring to God. He takes an army of about 300,000 against an army of a million men who had come to to take him on, Ethiopians. And it's said that the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled, and there was this just amazing plunder. And of course... You know what's coming because we read it in the text. He was a really good king, almost to the end. In the 36th year of his reign, of his leadership, almost 90% in, he uh, started to have some trouble with Basha, or Basha, the king of Israel. And uh, this time, instead of crying out to God, Instead of calling the nation to cry to God, as he had done in the past, he acted on his own. Isn't that amazing? When we are not a people calling out to God, we are susceptible to all kinds of silly stuff. The fault lines start to appear in our leadership. We start to get self-reliant or we get pragmatic and we work out a plan. This time, instead of crying out for deliverance, He acted on his own. And what did he do? He emptied the royal treasuries to pay a bribe to the Syrians uh, in order for them to break uh, their alliance with Israel, the northern kingdom. And, of course, the rest is just a tragic story. He came under uh, God's judgment, and whatever happened to Asa... Uh, The implications are for the whole nation, and uh, to stop calling upon the Lord and come under that kind of judgment is crazy. Eventually, we know the story, he developed a a wasting disease in his feet, and he lived the rest of his reign in a constant state of emergency, militarily speaking, and, uh, and lived under God's disapproval. For 36 years, he'd been faithful, and for five short years, he is not. Summary, he had stopped seeking the Lord as his highest priority. i tell you, I'm standing in the worship tonight. We had such a wonderful time of worship, and I'm saying, Lord, please, don't let me get away with not seeking you. And of course, there's a, a warning in this for us guys who've been in ministry for a little bit longer than others. Uh, there are people looking to us. The implications are strong or huge. And uh, Asa messed up in year 36. We're now, Sue and I, are in the 38th year of uh, what I'd call vocational ministry, and uh, and we've seen in that period a wonderful track record of, of fruitfulness and God's kindness and faithfulness, particularly the last 21 years. But then I've realized I am as susceptible to self-reliance as Asa. I can start to want to ride the momentum of the past or kind of feel like I can start to cruise and enjoy the success of yesteryear and, uh, and just try and live the good life. Now what I find remarkable is when the prophet Hanani comes to him, and I want to remind us of, uh, of the sequence here. Hanani comes and says these words which we use in our prophetic words in many moments. He says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong to support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. But I want you to know this prophetic uh, encouragement, this uh, rich uh, sense of, uh, of, of, of a window into the kindness of God toward the people who seek him comes to Asa after he's messed up. And the beauty of this passage is that it comes to us before we've messed up. And we'd be very foolish to just treat this lightly and not ask, uh, what are some of the warnings for us? And I'm using this as a sort of a a framework to hang some of what I've seen in the last while and what I'm aware of uh, uh, that can undermine leadership. Let me say it again. I said it in the first talk. If we want leaders to last and marriages to last, all of that's necessary for ministries to last and for churches to last and for ministries to last. The implications are scary if we bomb out for those that are looking to us. Just a little bit of... uh, of gymnastics, uh, when Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter two and verse two, he says, "What I've taught you, Timothy, paraphrase, I want you to share with with others who will be able to, or faithful men who can teach others." So, how many guys are in that chain? This is not a formula for discipleship. I don't like formulas for those kind of things, but I think it's it, I think one of the things I've neglected is that in Paul's mind, when he said that, he was alive to Timothy. And Timothy was alive to faithful men. And faithful men were to be alive to the others that they're they're shaping and investing their lives in. So the problem, and what I want to do, is raise the stakes. If any one of the guys, and particularly Paul or Timothy, mess up, it's very, very serious implications for the guys that we're trying to shape. So what have I noticed? What are some of the wisdom and warnings? I was reading an article uh, in June, Stetser wrote, wrote an article about what he's noticed uh, uh, in, in terms of guys who don't finish strong in, uh, in the 21st century. And I've just taken two of his. He had five. I've just taken two. Here's the first one. He talks about anger. Anger. Notice our friend uh, Asa in Second Chronicles 16.10. It says, then Asa was angry with the seer. I mean, this guy was on a roll for 36 years, and suddenly he gets mad at the prophet who brings a word in the name of God. Who's he mad at? Here's a guy who was seeking the Lord, is now mad at the word of the Lord and God's servant. He puts him in stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this, this word. And Asa can't control it, and he spills the banks, and it says, and Asa inflicted cruelties, upon some of the people at that time. In 2017, I was involved with a church where, as I read this story, I was involved with a leader in a church in a country on the southern part of the tip of Africa in a certain city that will remain nameless. South Africa. I was trying to help a, a church work through stuff and I don't think I've ever, in 38 years of ministry, seen a guy so narcissistic, so continually angry, so mad at everyone all of the time. And I'm still trusting and believing that God can turn that and redeem that situation. But uh, I think we've got to we've got to we've got to audit this thing of anger, an emotion that lingers. When we don't get our own way, and whether we're mad at God, mad at our leaders, or mad at people, there are too many people in the body of Christ that are angry too easy, and too, they're too volatile in their anger, and they're too long in their anger. They're just too long. they bring a gasket, and the damage when you live under anger is absolutely terrible. Stetzer was talking about some of the leaders he sees. These guys get angrier and angrier in the evening of their life. Where does that come from? They have highly activated inner lawyers. They know how to present their case and try and win all the arguments. They're combative. They're not, as we were called today, expressing the, the true nature of being a follower of Jesus and the beauty of humility and gentleness. Do you know that that's the first imperative of the new of of the book of Ephesians? The first thing God tells us that we have to do, everything up to chapter three, is all the blessings we have in Christ. The first imperative of the New Testament is be completely humble and gentle, etc., etc. Why that? Why those two things, humble and gentle? Because that is the first expression of the fragrance of Jesus. Jesus had it right. He said to his disciples, come to me, learn from me, and take my yoke upon you, for I am humble and gentle. Gentlemen, ladies, we need a revolution of humility and gentleness. It is a beauty. It'll put the fragrance and the person of Jesus Christ on display in our day. And you can't just deal with anger. You can't just ban anger as uh, Keller and all the guys who teach on idols. You can't remove that idol of anger. You have to replace it with a superior affection. We've got to love Jesus enough to banish anger because we're so in love with an alternative and our hearts are so ravished by the grace of God. The second thing Stetzer talks about is this issue of identity. Identity. Too deeply connected to our movements or our ministry. Too deeply connected. I'm of NFI, NCMI, Advance, Acts 29, and what happens is the way we work at our faith very easily, we, uh, and, and I'm full movements, But movements are there to serve the forward movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here to multiply a message, not build a brand. And there's certain leaders who are so connected to their own ministry, they can't read their own season in life. I've seen it. They start to bottleneck the churches they're a part of. They start to... uh, uh, d- develop hierarchies. They, they they begin to get positional. They overdevelop their roles. And they can't h- h- hand over what they help create. They're so busy saying, my identity is is tied up in this monument to my success. And I'm saying that particularly to help the older guys like me around. We need to be servants to that next generation coming through, and we should get excited to see our fruit hang on other men's trees. I don't mean that in any patronizing way. It's just that we're we're here to see that next generation come through. What I love about Dudley Daniels and Terry Virgo is these men were happy to step back and to create room for this other generation of of leaders to come forward. Listen to to John Hosey, and tomorrow we'll listen listen to Matt Hosey and to see this wonderful sense of fathers making way, biological and spiritual, making way for sons is a fantastic way, and you can only do that when you redefine legacy. And when your identity is too tied up in your ministry or the movement, your sense of value is determined of where you are and all that, but when you see true legacy is actually not in the obligations of previous generations to you as a leader, the true understanding of legacy is in the sons. We raise our sons to go beyond us. It's the most freeing thing when we can get there. And I want to be one of those guys. And I give you full permission. If ever I'm in the way, just tell me that, and I'll find a really nice golf course to go and live on. <laughs> Thirdly, this concept of underleading. Now, some of you are thinking, "Oh, I don't, I don't underlead. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so I'm at every leadership conference I can get to. It's, it's we're overleading in our churches and we're underleading ourselves." Uh, the late Michael Eaton, based in Crisco Fellowship in Kenya, uh, we had him talk to a whole bunch of pastors in Cape Town once. And, he just said to us in the previous movement we were a part of, he said, but you guys are so obsessed with leadership. All you do is talk about leadership. Every conference you're it's called a leadership conference. Now, I want you to know I'm passionate about leadership development, but leadership has two frontiers. It's the leadership that gets us to the uttermost parts of the world, and there's another kind of leadership that gets to another frontier called the innermost part of my heart. And we mess up, not in the outermost part of the earth. We mess up first in the innermost part of our house. Ask Asa. He messed up in his relationship with God. He was no longer seeking the Lord in the alone place. And Paul, writing to Timothy, just wants to massage this point into Timothy's life. And uh, these wonderful, wonderful words. He says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, and it holds the promise for the present life and also to the life to come. You know when you start leading yourself well and you're leading yourself to the scriptures and you're leading yourself toward christ like you know what you say no to you say no to not just sin, you say no to bullying, you say no to being positional, you say no more and more to boasting, say no to what's your no, fill in the blank. And I can say after 38 years of ministry and I'm not the standard for anything but in my own life, it's the only life I've lived, I remember uh, hearing this saying once and I've applied it to myself, if I were to kick the butt of the person who has caused me the most damage in the last decade, I probably would not be able to sit down for a week. Because I know we love to think that the devil did it. My elders are misbehaving. Life has dealt me a bad hand. God is not really sovereign and in control. He doesn't really love me. We get all those little tantrums of the soul. The tantrums of the soul are the result of a soul that is not being well led. And sometimes we got to get our souls and say, hey soul, submit. And sometimes we just too busy exercising self-pity and I know that movie I've lived in a self-pity season in my life it is the breeding ground of demons you will hear sermons in the self-pity space that will feed toxicity in your soul and tonight is a night for some of you to get free from this Shallow Wells is the fourth one Shallow Wells we're so busy getting material for the task, and but we're not deepening our devotional well on a regular blaze, uh, basis. We're not leading from a vital spirituality. We're not leading out of an interactive private relationship with God. We're not, we're not leading in a way that we're more and more free from our insecurities, I've learnt over my life is that most of God's big words that I've carried in my heart are the words I experienced in the private place where my life and my heart were listening to his private words. The big words for our church, the big words for stuff in community where we, the prophetic sense of the future came out of just that anointed daily plodding of being under God's voice. And I've had to teach my soul, Rigby, don't you dare read the Bible for what you can get out of it. Start to read the scriptures to expose yourself to it. We come under this word for our own soul's sake first. And it's such a gift. This other one, I'm going, uh, these are things that we can meditate on and I don't want to take too much time tonight. We've had a full innings. We've worked hard today. Blocked ears. Blocked ears. They all are interconnected in some way. Your ears open to the whispers of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this Messianic passage in Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. Morning by morning, he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. So we often think of Jesus as the world's greatest teacher. This is clearly messianic if you go and read the passage. Multitudes flock to hear him. And uh, uh, they would say to his teachings and these amazing parables and talks, they would say, never has anyone spoken like this. But notice the secret here. Jesus is this amazing teacher because he is an amazing teacher listener to the whispers of God in his own life. When he incarnated into human history, he was fully man, fully God. But in terms of this fully human expression in his life, there was a voluntary subordination of his divine attributes. They were always fully present. It's not kenosis, heresy. They were fully present in him, But Jesus comes as a man, day by day, morning by morning. I'm so encouraged by that. If he needed morning by morning, then Rigby Wallace is in the front of the queue for morning by morning. And that's why Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and with favor with both God and man. But there's another verse in the Psalms, which is not messianic. It's the psalmist himself who says of, uh, of how God works with him, he says, you have given me an open ear. I don't know if you're familiar with this. In another translation, it says, ears you have dug for me. Uh, listen carefully. God gives you an open ear, but another translation says it's not that easy. God's had to dig that ear open, because it's full of spiritual wax. It's not open to the whispers of God. It's more open to what culture is saying, what the latest conference is saying, and we're running around. Eugene Peterson goes further, and he says in the book, Eat This Book, a a conversation in the art of spiritual reading, he pictures God swinging a pickaxe into our granite blockheads, so that we can hear, really hear, when he speaks to us. Remember about eight or nine years ago, reading through the book of Acts and getting to Acts five, twenty-nine, where Peter and John have been put in prison. I've read this over and over and over again. And then I read it again, and they come out before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin leaders Say then, didn't we forbid you to preach in his name? And now you have filled the city with your message. (laughs) And it's like this verse just jumped out. Like the Holy Spirit says, I want you to do that. Not exclusively just common ground, but I want you to give your life to filling Cape Town with the life, message, and fame of Jesus. And the vision was born to multiply Congregations in our city. It's not the only way God is leading. We've got great churches in our city. We're just one, uh, we're one small part of a massive uh, thing that we think God wants to do. But but we want to do what God's called us to do, and that those like whispers with our name change. We used to be called Friends First. I read that uh, Paul uh, in First Corinthians nine twenty three. I'm, I'm illustrating that big things can come out of very private moments with God. They're not always in a public meeting. They can be but uh, I think God's looking for, to develop private histories with us, where we can talk about what God's saying to us, where we're talking to our elders, what's God saying to you, and we start, I think we'll stir up a new wave of prophetic uh, 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 contribution if we're not always making it about what the meeting, ha- let's make the meetings be the overflow yeah. platform for, for uh, private histories with God. Yes. I was reading, and it says, Paul says, I become all things to all men, that by all means I might reach some, in, an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, I think it's the New Living Translation, uh, Paul is saying, I've become all things to, I've done, so I've done everything, I've done everything I can to build common ground with my culture in order to bring them to Christ. And we were going through a name change possibility, and the elders were all praying that I'd get the revelation, and they didn't want to, because I was defending our identity as a church. And God just shook it all up when I saw that. I thought, you know what? Friends first sounds like you know a club for all kinds of you know different people and 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 it was highly relational, nothing missional and uh, and that became so it's it's there are those words that are private for you and then those words for for leadership and they words for a church, but there's also prophetic directional words. and those are not generally things in my life that I found just born in uh, you know. Uh, you know where it's been prescriptive. From uh, you know, some other leader says, "Hey, we think you should change your 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 name." But I would like to see will in your church because I feel like the Lord has something for him, and I just want to, with you, just share, share it afterwards if you don't mind. Um, sixthly, comparison. Comparison. Too many are not free from the cancer of. Comparison, spiritual chemo needed. What's the problem with comparison? Well, at a psychological level, we normally are comparing up. Somebody's got more than us. We very seldom compare down, although there's a pride dynamic where we say, you know, I drive a Volvo and you only drive a Volkswagen, that you sort of feel superior until you see the guy in the four by four Volvo, and then it's like terrible, you need therapy. problem with comparison, any form of comparison is, number one, it accuses God. Comparison says, God doesn't really know how to deal with my expectations, and uh, you seem, God, to be loving those guys more than me and more than us or whatever it is. Secondly, comparison denies the uniqueness of calling and placement. You know, there's a guy in a place called Lungabon in, in South Africa, Theo. Uh, Theo, what's his surname again? Reynolds. Reynolds. Thank you for that. Who who did that? You guys from the UK know better than I do. Okay, you do from because South Africa. Okay, such a good guy. He's got a he's got a church in a in a town of about eleven thousand. Okay, he's got a church of attending four hundred and fifty on a on a Sunday. Now. Now, we went to uh, uh, Sheshi and Trudy's uh, church in Doris Salaam, and I just find it amazing that, that uh, as I've been journeying with this guy, he's full of vision, he loves what God's doing, and now he's starting to talk about plowing churches all up in that region. It's like the Lord has really got a hold of his heart. But we've got to be very careful that we don't overestimate what we're doing in our big cities with uh, maybe a few thousand coming to our meetings. We made to look really, really good, but when it comes to, you know, uh, he's got a unique calling and placement, and he is remarkably fruitful where he is, and we need to honor that. I'm embarrassed to tell you the story of uh, in about 1991 or 89, between that season of my life, I was in Johannesburg leading a church, and. Uh, uh, saw churches around us really exploding and growing. Go to their car parks when there's a conference, and all you do is just see all this fruitfulness and success, and uh, you start to feel those toxic juices, thinking, God, you really do love these guys. I'm glad you love them, but hey, can you spread the love a little? I'm also one of your sons. and, and uh, Have you ever done one of those things, you call it prayer? But actually, I went up on this mountain called Linksfield Ridge, took a coffee, Bible, and a deck chair, and I thought, I'm going to go and seek the Lord. And as I was whinging before the Lord, I mean, praying, (laughs) I found myself praying, oh God, if only we had land like the Bryanston Church. And God, if we just had members who, look at that car park with all those cars. And if we just had those kind of rich businessmen, we would be an amazing church, and I'm, I'm just going on and on, and I'm, I'm really getting excited and letting God know, and I'm thinking, oh, at least the Lord's really hearing me, and I'm sure breakthrough's coming, and then I sit down in my chair, open my Bible to Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 11, and I'm reading as I'm sipping coffee, and it says, he who works his own land will have abundant food He who chases fantasies will come to ruin. (laughs) I mean, Thompson Chain reference in those days over to Proverbs 29, I think it is. It says, he who works his own land will have abundant food. He who chases fantasies lacks sense. It was a defining moment in my life. I began to see God promising, I want you to work your land. I'll bless your labor I've called you to this church, I've called you to, uh, to preach the gospel to different people in the city, and uh, it was such a, a, a disciplining word in my life, but it was something that I've, I've reminded myself of. Psalm 16 is that psalm of where we are, you know, when every uh, Jewish family head would receive his piece of land, when inheritances were dished out in Israel, he'd get a stone that corresponded to a piece of land that he's never seen. That piece of land is an expression of the sovereignty of God and God's providential love. And God sovereignly, the guy would put his hand in a leather bag, take out a stone, and he would say. What would he say, love? May God maintain my lot. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. He would prophesy over his future before he entered it because he had a revelation uh, of, of the gospel that, that God is kind. There's not one of us that gets bypassed. I hear stories of guys wanting to go to different nations and much harder soil than any of the places we've been in. And, uh, and when you get your, your lot and you say, I'm all in, when I go to Glasgow or I'm down in Cornwall or I'm going to Turkey or whatever it is, where you go, you don't have to compare with any, you go. You go. And you say, may the Lord maintain my lot. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And uh, on comparison, the other thing comparison does is it kills creativity. You're so busy living in another person's story, you forgot to hear those whispers of the Holy Spirit around what you could be doing to reach people far from God in your own uh, sphere. And then there's in Deuteronomy, uh, there's that lovely verse, I think it's twice in, uh, in the Torah, There's this verse that says, cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. What's all that about? It's about where you start to lust after someone else's inheritance and that notion of just... Moving that boundary so so you can enlarge your territory. No, no, work your own soil. He who works his own soil will have abundant food, abundant harvest, abundant leaders. Work your own soil. Stop complaining around what you don't have and start working what you do have and expect God and his grace to take you forward. Lekka, which is South African for cool. Uh, Here's a big one. Impatience. Not long to go, guys. Impatience. I found a great definition of patience. As patience is learning to harmonize my life with God's rhythms, God's sovereignty, and God's purposes. In Proverbs 1632, another verse that is like a governing verse in terms of my inner life. The wise man says, Better a patient man than a warrior. Just contrast you. Patient man, warrior. Huh? Better a patient man than a warrior. One who has self control, patient man, self control, inner world, warrior, take a city, external. Better a patient man than a warrior, one with self control than one who takes a city. So I'm ambitious, and I think God's put into us and wired into us a kind of spiritual ambition for his glory. I, uh, I'm I get i I'm thrilled when, when, when God uses us in new ways and we see some fruitfulness and some advances of the gospel. But I've also realized that those, that ambition can get unsanctified. And uh, this long process of harmonizing my life with what God wants to do, not the brand building wants to do. So we're nine congregations. We're unashamedly intentional. We're about to plant our first congregation but probably before the year, uh, end of the year into Lunga the first township. It's the closest uh, black township uh, community. We have members in that community. We've got a group of about 30 to 40 already meeting there. And we've got uh, a wonderful, uh, it's a sort of a a dual leadership role of a white guy who speaks a black language from that area and the black guy who's the predominant pastor figure. And we, 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 we figure it out as we go. But we're having to realize that this is probably going to take longer than our previous church plants because we're not backing off. We've learned from uh, Jubilee and numbers of other churches around. If you're going to do multicultural uh, church, not everybody's jumping up and down. And as a prophetic witness of a picture of the future, it's way, way harder to do that. And so uh, uh, as I contemplate that, I'm reminded of the first prophetic word the Lord ever gave me, tell me if I needed this. First prophetic word. I'm at a youth meeting, age 19, 20. Rush forward. The Holy Spirit whispers to me, this man's going to pray for you. I go forward. I sit there. I hit the altar like a wet dishcloth. I'm sitting there. And this pastor comes and puts his hand on me, and he just says these words. Be patient. Don't rush, God. There's seed time before the oaks. And just branded that onto my soul. What I loved about it was this promise of maybe an oak forest somewhere, but boy, did I have some plans for how we could fast track that. And basically, the story of common ground and most of our life, and I heard somebody use that word, I think it was Owen, he says, we're just plodding along. Here's the issue. If you're plodding along in steady, long obedience in the same direction, it's not just plodding along. If your life is harmonized with God and his rhythms, It's anointed plodding. It's the power of ordinary. And folk, most of us are not gonna be superstars in the way this thing plays out. And so I commend to you uh, pursuing patience. It really is a virtue. It's not uh, some fruit of the spirits that's designed to terrorize us. I think I'm gonna call time on that. I was going to talk about uh, raising raising others. Uh, But I think I'm just going to say to you the devil is in no hurry to take us down, and hopefully some of these, these the, the warnings and the wisdom on how to have tender hearts, not like Asa. Don't dial out, don't opt out, don't bomb out. Your role can change from time to time. Stay in the game. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Why? Because we're on this side of that prophetic promise to Asa. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Good news this morning we 're under this evening we 're under his washful, gracious eye. We can anticipate his strong support as we look to him. He longs to be gracious to us. And of course, Jude. In his final letter, when he calls believers to perseverance in tough, tough times, he brings that benediction. It's not just some loose little badge to put in our lives. It says, now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You want some good news? God is fighting for our blamelessness. He's not anticipating us blowing up and bombing out. We're needing to hear the warnings, but anticipate the kindness of God, the keeping power. He can keep us. His power to keep us in his ways is way more powerful than uh, our our temptation. If we're seeking the Lord, sin, compromise becomes less and less of a possibility. God, I want to thank you for my friends tonight. I want to thank you for an unbelievably full day. Thank you that it's been wonderful to be under your word. Thank you for the stories and the interviews and the talks. And uh, We just come before you tonight and want to say, Lord, why don't you keep us from falling? to you present us faultless in the presence of your, of your glory with great joy. Lord, thank you that you long to be gracious to us. Lord, I'm asking you to strengthen us on in the inside. I ask you to help us to hear the word of the Lord tonight without condemnation. Know that you're such a good, good father, that you're so kind. Yeah, I commend every man and woman, every marriage, every church, every ministry, every future, every vision to you, and say, Lord, You're so kind. You're so wonderful. Who would not want to seek you with all of our hearts? Keep us seeking you. Keep us provoking one another to seek you all our days for your glory. And everybody said amen. 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 Thank you, guys.